2: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to, God damn it, the Mary Rose. When was the last time this happened? Uh, we have got our act together and assembled down the pub, some of us anyway. Uh, but there is a downside to this, isn't there, Chris? What is the downside to this? How long have you been in charge of scheduling?
3: About four weeks. <laughs> and what is
2: the topic of tonight's debate?
3: Tonight is a very tough one. We have to decide who the greatest German is, which is difficult because the whole nation is great. So I, I don't know how, how we're going to do this.
2: Alina's giving you the wank sign, and rightly <laughs> so. Kit's just put in the chat, Chris loves gerbils. <laughs> 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 sounds no, like gerbils. <laughs> gerbils, yeah, slang for something else. Holmes, presumably you're a font of wisdom about all things German.
4: I, I did do a little Googling, Um because I thought this was start like Clive. I thought we were starting at seven, and then we started at eight, so I had an hour. So I thought to add value, because I like to add value. I don't know that much. In fact, the only one I I, I went in any depth for was uh, the Brothers Grimm, because I thought they were going to be introduced, but they haven't been. Um, and I ended up rereading my Stiltskin book, which I always used to find Stiltskin quite scary anyway. But I reread it, and the plot is dreadful. So a bloke goes in front of the king... And he's a bit scared. I don't know why he was in front of the king anyway, this miller. And he says, oh, uh, my daughter can spin gold, which is a bit of an unusual reaction. And then uh, she can spin gold out of straw. And then in the end, she gets put in a, a room full of straw every night. Can't do it. Gets in a bit of a state. A little chap called Stilkin comes in, spins the straw into gold. She keeps giving him stuff. Then she runs out of stuff to give him. And then he says, well, I'll carry on. But if you, if you become queen, I need I will have your first child, unless you know my name. Which is a really weird plot when you think about it, isn't it? Uh,
2: yeah, I think Kit's trying to modernise it in the chat using Prince Andrew, which is <laughs> possibly evil work. <laughs> uh, so what you're saying is it's a good job Kate had to work late because her pitch was shit.
4: Yeah, well, I was all—I thought it was quite good. You know, they've got obviously there's a massive cultural export of all these uh, tales, although some of them I think were uh, uh, misappropriated by the looks of it. But yeah, but I just. I don't know if you reread the Ladybird books again; they're not not as great as you thought they were back in 1979.
2: Indeed, right. Who else? So Kit is here; he's already causing trouble. Chapman, what are you up to? How how is Cornwall?
5: Uh, well, exactly Cornwall. So previously, I think I was in Thailand last time we had the Merry Rose. God, quite
2: possibly. I've vague recollections of you utterly shitted on two pound beer and just disappearing.
5: I mean, I, I was quite quite drunk. Um, so much. So much alcohol was drunk that I actually found myself emailing the Ronald Reagan Institute with uh, with gay porn titles for books uh, involving Ronald Reagan as a pitch. Um, who, who hasn't done that when they shitted? Come I was going to say that didn't go down very well. Um, uh, so yeah, now I'm in Cornwall. I'm a lecturer at the University of Falmouth. Um, if you want to learn about journalism or creative writing, I'm the person doing it. So please come along.
1: This is,
4: the, this is the first time I've seen Kit sitting up on screen. I've seen him sitting up in real life, but <laughs> normally he's lying down or doing something else. But...
5: It's, it's really weird. When you're in a hotel, there are so few seats. What you discover is that basically you're just existing on a bed. And, and now that I'm actually, you know, I've got a house, unbelievably. I'm living very nicely in Cornwall. It's, it's really nice here. It's lovely. Um, I've got a chair as well. I've got a desk and everything.
2: Adult in for the win from Kit. Uh, You've already heard from Chris, who's inflicted the Germans on us tonight, or the Germans. Chris?
3: Yes.
2: (laughs) How is the medway?
3: Um, I'm I'm trying not to go outside. I've I've become really peculiar. I don't like going out and interacting with people. And I talk to myself a lot more now, um, which which has a link to tonight, as um, I was walking in the countryside right out in the middle of nowhere, chatting away to myself, no one around for miles, walk straight into someone while I'm in mid-conversation in German to myself. Because I'm mad.
2: (laughs) Did you stop going outside because every time you did, your little ginger face got burnt?
3: The last two weeks, yeah, on and off.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. We also have Clive with us. Hello, Clive.
6: Hello, Alex. Lovely to see you in the dark
2: there. Lovely to see you sitting in the dark. Where's your porno light tonight?
6: I forgot to charge it up. It's been so long since I had to use it.
2: (laughs) Have you recovered from the Chelsea game?
6: Um, What game? I've missed that.
2: The The season hasn't started yet. (laughs) Yeah, good, correct answer. Uh, And we've got Alina. Evening. Alina presumably uh,
7: hit the roof when she saw the topic of this debate. do you know what when it's my turn I'm going to tell my little story before I actually do my argument so uh instead of doing it now uh I will give you guys a little taster so yes I got very annoyed but I've dealt with it and now we're moving on (laughs) you're being a grown-up wow I know wow shit like this happens once in a blue
2: moon it does indeed uh, and speaking of grown-ups because since we last had her on down the pub uh, heather's basically re-landscaped her whole lawn single-handedly and i mean like her, that's not code that, that her actual lawn
0: yeah um it it's i'm here <laughs> <laughs>
2: she looks like she's there in body and not at all in mind uh right okay so let's get this started then um Oh, It's going to be a nice little compact debate tonight, uh, so we're going to have, I think because I'm going to do one as well, we're going to have six Germans to choose from. Uh, <laughs> let's go to oh, Clive, should we do Clive first because he's basically been waiting since seven o'clock and it's now twenty past eight, so <laughs> I feel like he's going to explode.
6: I'll come gushing out with it. And despite Alex, Alex's commandment not to go post-1933, that's where I'm going. There are a couple of very surprising omissions from this evening's debate. Otto von Bismarck, the man who created Germany, and Karl Marx, the German who had the greatest influence of any German on the whole world. While noting their exclusion, I've not chosen either of them. but have gone instead for the man who made modern Germany. Konrad Adenau. He was the person who said, in view of the fact sorry, in view of the fact that God limited the intelligence of man, it seems unfair that he did not also limit his stupidity. Now Adenau was a man with many faults and he faced much criticism during his life and since. As he quipped, a thick hide is a gift from God and first make yourself unpopular, then you'll be taken seriously. His relationship with the Nazis was not as distant as some might have liked, either during their period in power or his own. He was conservative, he was devoutly Catholic, he created a society that gave rise to dissatisfaction among the youth, the light of which we can only imagine in this country, at the moment at least. The Bad gang part of his legacy. He was criticised for allowing Germany to be divided, and for the social and economic consequence of that division, families torn apart, and for allowing vast swathes of Germany to be swallowed up by Poland as the Soviet Union moved west. But criticism was something that he could accept. Against this, one must recognise his achievements. His policies led to the post-war German economic miracle, I remember my parents being furious when a young German student who was lodging at our house in the early 1960s said, you may have von war, but we have von peace. Within 20 years of the war ending, a war that devastated Germany, killing millions, displacing more, destroying its entire economic infrastructure, West Germany had become a stronger economic force than the United Kingdom, the victor. In so doing, Adenauer laid the groundwork for Kohl, Schmidt, and Merkel. He provided the economic strength that allowed reunification. He established Germany as the leading European economic power and the driving force behind the EU. Adenauer was the father of modern Germany in the same way that Bismarck was the father of the bellicose state that started two world wars. Adenauer reinvented Germany. and What he left behind was a force for good and not for evil. Konrad Adenauer was born in Cologne in January 1876 into a family of civil servants. He attended the humanist Postel Gymnasium and on leaving school went to work for a bank. His background was unremarkable. And then he got lucky and was awarded a scholarship to study law, a fine training for anyone. He attended the University of Freiburg. After qualifying, he served a short period as a judge and then joined a law firm run by a Cologne politician from the Centre Party. He married well in 1904 and naturally fell into centre-right politics. In 1906, he was elected Alderman and three years later became deputy to the mayor, who luckily was his wife's uncle. Luckier still, his role kept him away from the army and he spent the war organising Cologne's food supply. His wife died suddenly in 1916. He was hospitalised soon afterwards following a car accident. But by 1917, his late wife's uncle moved to Berlin and a cabinet post, and now stepped into the mayor's office. He was the youngest mayor in Prussia, and he set about his task following the devastation of Germany's defeat with gusto. He aimed to create a metropolis of the West to rival Berlin. In 1919, he founded Cologne University, he held a trade fair, built docks on the Rhine, and took steps at the time not totally popular that ensured that the Rhineland was not annexed by the French. As president of the Prussian Council of State's position he held from 1921 to 1933, he held considerable influence across the country, but when the Nazis came to power, he was immediately dismissed from all his positions and banned from Cologne. Already 57 years old, he may have thought that the time had come to retire. He kept a low profile. In 1944, after the attempt on Hitler's life, he was imprisoned until the end of the war. 1945, aged 70, he returned to Cologne, where the American occupying forces appointed him as mayor. This didn't last too long, as a few months later, the British, who had taken control of the area, dismissed him and expelled him from Cologne. This, of course, had a profound impact on him and Germany. Perhaps if he had been left in Cologne, he might have carried on serving the city, but instead he formed a new political party, combining Catholic and Protestant conservatives into the Christian Democrats. In 1949, he was elected Chancellor of a fledgling West German state. He was 73 years old and stayed in that position for the next 14 years. As he once said, when everybody else thinks it's the end, we have to begin. So what did he achieve in those 14 years? He built a new democracy. In foreign policy, he achieved state sovereignty for West Germany. He built close ties to the free West. He reconciled with France and took steps towards European unification. He integrated displaced people and refugees into German society. Here, he was accused of also integrating former Nazis, but that was part and parcel of his policy of bringing Germany together. The expand- he achieved the expansion of a social market economy as a new kind of economic order in which the promotion of free competition and the responsibility of the welfare state are interconnected. He was the person behind the German economic miracle. He secured internal social peace, legislation on determination of the steel and coal industry and on capital formation for employee- employees, burden sharing, social housing construction, child benefit, the green plan for agriculture, dynamically shaping the social security pension, became another anchor point of West Germany's renowned welfare system. For the first time in Germany, social policy was continually and consistently pursued as a structural policy. And in doing all of that, he clearly laid the foundations of modern Germany and allowed it to thrive as it has He stepped down from the chancellorship two years after the Berlin Wall was built, but by then he had already set the groundwork that would allow for its destruction and German reunification. Critics believed he should have adopted an Austrian model. Whether this was achievable is debatable. If he had followed that path, Germany and Europe would probably not be as strong as they are today.
2: Lots of applause for Clive. Well done, because uh, we all joked, didn't we, about let's just pretend German history doesn't exist after 1933. But Clive comes in like a grown-up right at the beginning and Holmes and uh, gives credit where it's due for the man that fixed Germany after all that shit.
6: Aden has not exactly. You know, if I were around in Germany at that time, I almost certainly wouldn't have voted for him. But you have to look back with respect to what he did achieve.
2: Holmes, what do you make of it?
6: I
4: mean, I, I looked at—I'd never heard of him to be honest—but I looked at him earlier, and actually, he's a quite a strong candidate, I think. Um, I mean, despite Clive's efforts with a couple of accents, there, I've got a feeling the subject matter tonight isn't exactly going to be a comedy goldmine, to be honest. So, we'll, we'll just go with—we'll we'll just go with what we've got. I think Clive, you, you hinted at—hinted at it a little bit, and that was his. Um, his relationship, if you like, with the Nazis. I mean, from what I could see, he wasn't a Nazi. He was against them. He was imprisoned, as you mentioned. I think he was imprisoned another time as well. Yeah. To power. um, He sort of brought in an amnesty for the Nazis, didn't he?
6: Yeah, it was his denazification that raised a lot of acrimony in later times. And also, if you look into the origins of the Baden-Meinhof gang and people like that, there was Huge discontentment among the youth, particularly, that the people who were in authority over them were former Nazis and were, you know, authoritarian in that their approach to life generally. And that wasn't necessarily such a good thing. But one can understand why Adenauer did it, because he had to try and forge a country together and bring everyone together and to get over that the Nazi period and put it behind them.
4: Yeah, which I, which Today I'm we might quite... have a
6: Truth and Reconciliation Council or something like that. I didn't think there was the luxury that one could do that with then.
4: Which, which I, I, I kind of get to a certain degree, but the amnesty applies to everyone, including people in the SS who were known to have done terrible things. And I'm treading mm. carefully because there's, there's obviously someone who knows more about this stuff than me on this, on this podcast. But, and also, did he abandon that after a, after a couple of years, though, didn't he? 51?
6: You're the historian, not me.
4: <laughs> well, I, I'm a man who had half an, hour, half an hour in his hands to look at Wikipedia beforehand so I wouldn't go <laughs> OK um, no no further questions in that case Excellent. i
2: just uh, playing devil's advocate in that Kit, uh, you can't even NASA on even clean from Nazi taintedness are they?
5: Um, I mean the, the Americans brought over Werner von Braun who was an ardent Nazi um, you know, there there is a very famous song about him, about how much he doesn't care if it's a V2 rocket or a space probe, as long as he's you know, blowing something up. Um, Dr. Strangelove was based on Werner von Braun. So certainly the U.S. were very, very happy to use Nazis. The Russians absolutely were. They captured a lot of German scientists and they used them. Um, so this idea that there was this instant denazification that occurred yeah. is just a myth. It didn't happen.
2: Uh, well done, Clive, for taking on uh, a post World War II German. Uh, let's go to let's go to Chris next, Chris, because you are entering. I'm keen because, seeing as you basically love all Germans, uh, are you going to do Victoria Louise? Are you going to do the Kaiser's daughter, or are you going to pick someone else and be sensible? I'm going to pick someone else and be sensible. Um,
3: (laughs) Mainly mainly because I thought someone was going to steal her from me. Actually, I'm looking at a picture across my room. How weird is that? Um, (laughs) uh, Weird on many, many levels, Chris. (laughs) And that's why I'm single. Well, one of the reasons. Um, But before I do uh, my sensible pitch, uh, Sophie was really excited and she wanted to do a pitch, but it's a school night, so she couldn't. So she texted me this this morning with... um, Rapunzel is the best German and the best Disney princess. This is because she, of her healing power and her independence. She blackmails a stranger into helping her with the uh, one thing she wanted from when she was a young girl. Rapunzel managed to find her birth parents without even knowing she had been taken away from them.
2: Holmes, what say you about Rapunzel? I, I was just saying, is that a Brothers grim one? Uh, Don't also- yeah, Kit's nodding. I'm going to take oh, Kit okay.
4: And that that wasn't the, wasn't on the list, but Chris, you didn't mention the long hair, did you? I mean, that's the first thing that comes into anyone's mind about Rapunzel.
2: Not really selling his daughter's choice, his daughter's No,
4: caring. I mean hair so long and so strong that a bloke can climb up it and get into a big tower. That's got to be the first bit, hasn't it?
3: Also, she's blonde, blue eyed, relatively tall because she's in a tower. But
4: <laughs> I mean, I suppose, I suppose. I suppose having hair roots that strong is possibly an Aryan trait, isn't it, I guess? But I don't really know that much about hair and biology and stuff.
3: No, I don't think they tested for that in the 30s. <laughs> All right. Uh, my serious choice. Uh, I, I've probably got as much chance of winning as Carl uh, Ka- uh, von Muller had of winning First World War. So uh, let's start with it. Carl uh, um, von Muller was born in 1873 in Hanover. Uh, his father was a Prussian colonel. And he joined the German Navy, surprise, surprise, in 1891. Uh, He served in uh, various vessels. I'm not going to list them. But he was on the unprotected cruiser uh, Schwalbe uh, off Germany, East Africa, when he contracted malaria. Uh, He was then, because of his illness, he went back to Germany, where he got uh, moved on to uh, the staff of Prince Heinrich, uh, the Kaiser's brother where he was, he was later promoted to Corvette and captain, moved to the Navy office where he worked for Admiral von Tirpitz, who was the head of the German Navy at the well, Grand Admiral von Tirpitz, where, who was head of the Navy, who really liked von Müller. So in the spring of 1913, he's given the command of the light cruiser Emden in the Far East as part of the East Asian squadron. During the tour of the German possessions, the Emden is fired upon by uh, rebels whilst anchored off Nanjing. So... The German cruiser fires back, beats off the rebels, and he is awarded the Order of the Royal Crown Third Class. So I hear you, I hear you all saying, so he's the captain of a boat in the German Navy, who gives a toss? There's to thousands of them. Well, he actually has quite a big impact. In 1914, he suddenly finds himself in a serious dilemma. As the Second Reich only had one major colony in the Far East, in Tsingtao in China, with several other secondary colonies in New Guinea, Samoa, and a scattering of Pacific islands, all under the protection of uh, some German Admiral called Vice Admiral von Spey, I may have mentioned him before, um, and his squadron. As war loomed, uh, looked inevitable. Von Muller was the senior naval officer in Singtau aboard Emden. So he has to take over charge of defending the city. He gives orders to the governor and to the, na- to the other naval personnel to get as many colliers and supply ships to uh, von Spey's armoured cruisers and also to convert the liner Prince Idol Friedrich into a warship. He then buggers off the Gulf of Korea and on the first day of the war captures the Russian ship Ryazin and brings it back to um, Tsingtao and orders that to be turned into a warship. He later then takes these ships and joins von Spey. Where he argues, if the squadron is going to head east, um, that a single German ship should remain in the Indian Ocean and destroy as much British shipping as it possibly can to draw the British away from the squadron. Von Spee gives him the job. He said, fine, if you really want to do it, you do it. And so, somewhere between August and uh, November 1914, the Enden captures and sit, captures 22. Uh, civilian ships I'm not going to go into the each and every capture because everyone will get bored and um, if you are interested I might suggest uh, this book by Chris Sams German Raiders of the First World War it's still available, you can buy it and it goes. there's two chapters on this um, but He sounds standards.
2: like a wanker <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> He does what He even looks gormless um, But the standard method of capture was quite straightforward. They'd um, sneak up on the, they had a fake funnel attack that they made to look like a British ship. They'd sneak up on a civilian ship, signal them and say, no wireless, stop your engines. If the ship refused, they would fire a warning shot. They never actually had to fire a damaging shot. When Once the ship had been slowed down and stopped, they'd send over a boarding party, take the civilians off the ship take everything they needed from the ship and then sink it. And so they, they had quite a few supplies. The civilians were then placed on what they, they used to keep one ship with them at all times that they would then turn into a sort of a floating prison or a junker, as they used to call them, or junkmen. Um, and the prisoners were kept in really good condition. They were well fed. They were looked after. And when the ship, one of these ships got filled to a certain level, von Müller would release them either to a neutral port or at a very slow pace towards the British uh, British port, and then leave so that they'd be somewhere else by the time they got to the prisoners. On every occasion that the prison ship was released, the uh, prisoners gave uh, the German crew and their captain uh, three cheers and a thanks for looking after. And in all the news reports, they said, what a wonderful, wonderful captain this German ship, um, ship's captain had been, except for two men. Uh, it was one of the captains of one of the ships and his chief engineer who kept referring to them as blasted Germans, being drunk and disorderly. So von Müller ordered them to be locked into a supply cupboard. And then uh, they were the only people to complain But everyone else said what a wonderful, wonderful person they were. But it's not just that. Von Müller carried out, had, did three exceptional moves of, of relatively amazingness. One of them was the 22nd of September, 9, 9.30 at night. Madras Harbor HMS um, Hampshire is seen to sail into the port half an hour later HMS Hampshire starts opening fire on the Burma oil supplies it actually turns out it's the Emden within half an hour they set fire to the oil supplies they didn't fire on any of the civilian areas they concentrated just on the oil tanks of course mass panic Um, only five people were killed in the bombardment uh, And that happened, they started sinking a couple of ships in the harbour, and there were some cadets on one of them. Um, They they then left and they went to go and hide hide on a British island who had no idea the war war was on. They thought the Germans were just there to visit. And the um, Germans even fixed their motorboat, the the island's motorboat, whilst they um, repaired the ship. The final one was the Battle of Penang on the 28th of October, with the Emden again sneaking into the harbour. Uh, sinking the Russian cruiser Zemchug and then opening fire on some of the ships in harbour but then having, feet, having to flee on the way out they run into the French crew, um, destroyer Mosque sink it take the wounded stops take all the all the wounded and survivors on board then stop a British ship and put the wounded onto, the, uh, onto them and direct them to the nearest Dutch colony where there's a field hospital. And with it is a letter from Captain Von Muller to the governor of Penang apologising for not stopping to pick up the Zemchug survivors because they believe there are enough Allied ships that could do that, and also for the accidental firing on a civilian launch, which they thought was a destroyer. Emden is then sunk whilst fighting valiantly at the Battle of Kokos against HMAS Sydney. Apparently, my friend who worked at the Australian Imperial War Museum so that the Australians won't shut up about it. But this doesn't sound like much. However, von Müller's um, story was followed by the global press. In Germany, he became an absolute hero. The entire crew were allowed to add von Emden to their names. The ship itself was uh, given the Iron Cross. The German newsreels went nuts for it. The neutral powers did as well. They thought this was fantastic. He didn't kill a single civilian in four months' worth of campaign. The British, as well, had to grudgingly give this man respect. Um, the fact that they that they hadn't been he would lived this Robin Hood ex- um, existence for about three months, three four months, cruising around the Indian Ocean, embarrassing the Admiralty at every turn, and for carrying out a gentlemanly war. This is in stark contrast about what, of what's going on on the Western Front. When we think about the um, rape of Belgium, the beastie Hun, uh, and what will come later with U-boats, the um, von Müller was the paragon of um, German nobility and chivalry. And in fact, when the German Navy uh, shelled Scarborough in December of 1914, Punch ran a cartoon of von Müller holding a sheet of paper, looking angry, with the words um, "with the bombardment of Scarborough" written across it, and underneath it just said "disgraced." He would go into custody. Then um, he was shifted to England, where he escaped from a POW camp, quickly recaptured. But his malaria that I mentioned earlier flared up, and eventually he's repatriated to Germany in 1918. He does get involved in politics very, very briefly. Um, he was awarded the Paul Emerite, Um and he was a member of the... Um, Uh, the German People's Party, but he unfortunately died from his malaria in 1923. So, unlike a lot of his contemporaries in the German Navy, he doesn't get tainted by Nazism or involvement in the Kriegsmarine later. So, he is a genuine war hero.
2: Hurrah! Well done, Chris. Uh, totally not surprised at that choice. Holmes, were you?
4: Well, I, I was like you. I thought he'd go for the Kaiser's daughter. sing. just spent months and months what hearing did you exactly. Say?
2: I fancy her. The end. Yeah. I, yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think to be fair, he's gone further than saying that he just fancies her over the over the months that we've been doing this. But uh, also, yeah, it's good built. to see that his broadband seems to be up to about two meg now. So that's a welcome improvement.
2: <laughs> yeah, and we bought him a microphone as well. So. <laughs>
4: um, I think this one might be a bit of a stretch. When I had a look earlier, even his Wikipedia page is only about half a page, so he's up against some pretty stiff composition competition. Rather, I mean, he sounds like—I mean, it's—he sounds like—I I quite like the, the sort of gentleman aspect of it, but I. Part of me thinks it's quite easy to be that benevolent in the circumstances that he found himself in. You know, in that, you know, if I'd captured 22 unarmed civilian ships, I would probably be able to treat their crew. Okay, it'd be a different matter if they were all armed and firing back at him. You know, and there's a slight hint at his personality, which, you know, I think, Chris, you said that at one point he'd taken some British people off the ship and they were on one of these sort of prison ships. And the first time two of them criticize him, they, he locks them in a cupboard. So I don't think he's necessarily as benevolent as you're making out Uh, i think it was was, was his boarding
3: officer who first suggested that they be incarcerated that they were being belligerent and unhelpful so he just said well we'll just separate them and we'll put it was a bit more than a cupboard it was a a storage area for minesweeping equipment so it wasn't just like a, a kitchen cupboard or something so they had a lot of space they were just uh separated from everyone else
4: I mean, to be fair, there's probably grounds for be belligerent, even if you've not been fired upon. I was on a ferry at the weekend. If another vessel came alongside and made us all get off and put us on a sort of a prison ship for a couple of months, I'd probably be a bit grumpy about it. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with the channels. And then he, he didn't kill any civilians, but did he kill I don't, sort of naval equivalent equivalents?
3: Um, well, the, the, there were sailors aboard the Zemchuk who were killed when uh, she explode was torpedoed and sunk and the same with the moscow um the captain had his the, the frenchman in charge had his legs blown away in the in the but that's they were firing back at that point so it was a proper battle
4: um, and then you meant you mentioned the m- madrasting but i didn't really capture that i, I took that slightly personally because my great-granddad was an engineer for the burma oil company <laughs> <No>.
3: <laughs> oh there was um actually there was something else about that the um the people, Because it was quite an embarrassment to the uh, British government because the governor was one of the 300 people who fled and he didn't come back for several days. And uh, a lot of the people lost a lot of respect for him. And I did read somewhere that the word Emdina stuck into uh, local dialects to mean cunning and uh, mothers would tell their children that if they didn't behave, the Emden would come back and get them. I don't know if that makes any difference.
4: And also, it's interesting because they, they were based at Singtao, were they?
3: yeah when they're at the beginning of the war because
4: the, the German influence that's where the beer comes from, isn't it? because there were breweries established by Germans when they were there, which led to yeah. the, the beer we know today
3: yeah it's got uh, it's the um has the same German purity law for um only four ingredients nothing nothing
4: nothing further from me
2: brilliant let's do one more and then we'll break to get some more drinks let's do still let's do a let's have a girl next.
1: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Borough purchase at borough.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST.
2: Girl,
7: chase yeah. that one. Well. Uh, I'm just looking for Use the term yeah. loosely. <laughs> Oh, thanks. You know, we we can double check that if you like, but uh, no thanks. Anyway, if you like, yes, please. <laughs> I so volunteer. I I got really really annoyed when I found out about this that I'd actually have to go and do some research about someone, and I'm just going to tell you a very brief introduction to how I got around to this. And Chris and I sat talking about this for a really long time. What I should do, who I should do. Then I thought I'd be really, really funny and do a historian like Katia Hoyer because she's so frigging awesome and love her to pieces. And then I kind of thought I should be a little bit serious occasionally. And then I thought I'd be really more funny by finding a German who has Polish roots and kind of piss everyone off while doing that. And then I kind of thought, maybe not, because that becomes too complicated. thought I might do some a footballer. Then I kind of thought, no, I don't want to piss Alex off because I'm terrified of getting some football term wrong or something else. So instead, I settled on something to really piss Alex off by far and to annoy her beyond anything she could possibly be annoyed by. And what is the one thing that I'm not allowed to talk about on this uh, podcast thing consi- consistently? And that is not Hindenburg. Thank you, Kit. I'm not allowed to talk about the Holocaust. And what am I going to do today? I'm actually going to talk about someone who I think, for me personally, I don't care about winning, by the way, really don't care about that today. But I care about talking about this person because he is so beyond incredible and he is an an another. I think I've mentioned him on the podcast before. I, prob- I must have mentioned him on the podcast before. And I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed with this guy. He is an angel in a place of absolute horror and absolute. Oh, Alex has come back. Should oh. I tell her again?
2: Should I repeat God again sake. what I'm doing? Like I go for a pity and she invokes the Holocaust. Is that what's happened? Yes. Oh, Christ. Go on. Just get well, on with it.
7: Well, because I was going to either piss you off with, with football that I was going to do errors. And that might really infuriate you or the Holocaust. So take your pick.
2: Oh, just do the holocaust get it out of the way Come yeah on. I thought
7: so anyway <laughs> so this guy for me he is probably one of the most incredible human beings ever to walk this earth especially in a place of of, of fear and pain and horror this guy comes mm-hmm. out with the most amazing things he could possibly do and I'm going to talk about Otto mm-hmm. Kuzel and uh, Holmes you can start googling Kuzel there's not much on him but I'm still it's, going to tell you
4: sorry I, I can't even can you say his name again a bit slower <laughs>
7: Otto Kusel. But anyway, moving on. He's actually born in uh, 1909. He's born in Berlin. And uh, he ends up being arrested in uh, 1937. And he gets put into uh, K.L. Sachsenhausen, which is just north of Berlin. He's done for something really petty, like theft. And he's just imprisoned for that. He's imprisoned on a green triangle. So he's classified as a a German criminal. So when Auschwitz starts uh, kicking off uh, in 1940 the first prisoners that arrive there are 30 criminals from Sachsenhausen and Otto Kuzel is on that transport. He's given prisoner number two. And when the first mass transport actually arrives to the camp, the German uh, prisoners are told that they are rapists and murderers and like the most horrible human beings that could ever walk this earth. Yet Otto Kuzel shows kindness to these people when they arrive while others are beating them and kicking the shit out of them and screaming at them and everything else otto kuzela stands by the door into the monopoly building where they arrived to and he hands out people water and he walks up to one of the prisoners roman Trojanovsky, and he says don't worry holds his hand says don't worry this will be over soon you will be safe you'll be okay and he shows these incredible acts of kindness while everybody else is literally screaming their heads off and beating people and just causing fear to run rampant. And Otokuza just shows this beautiful kindness. So we're, let's, we're moving on further in, into the into the concentration camp system and things. He actually ends up being the prisoner who takes care of uh, job assignments. And what he actually does is, I this is my personal opinion, and actually not just my personal opinion, but a, a lot of my historian friends agree with me, is that he managed to save a lot of lives. And you're thinking, how is this guy saving lives in this context? What he does is he takes prisoners from some of the most horrific work details and starts moving them around. So, for example, Zbigniew Tretzky, uh, a prime example, his brother got uh, kicked the shit out of so severely, he ended up in hospital. Now, if he went out, for example, in the middle of winter, still half-broken, to go and work, I don't know, for example, in in the building detail he's going to be dead in literally days or hours. So Otto Kuzel manages to sort him out a job still in the hospital to sweep floors and clean and do the basic things. So he would do this. He would move the prisoners who are most at risk around the the prison, uh, around the camp. The other thing is that there is not one word that me, nor any historian I know has ever found anything negative said about this man. It is all completely positive. There's another example. Otto Kuzel would be the type of man who would walk down, for example, the road in in the concentration camp and he'd come across a prisoner with uh, a torn shirt, torn trousers, uh, completely destroyed boots. And he would literally give the shirt off of his back to these people. He would then be able to himself go back to the and Kama, so basically the place where you would be able to get uh, clothing and get new clothing for himself. Another example, Christmas comes along. All the capos, so the functionary prisoners, they all get a big box of you know sausages and chocolate and all of these things that you can't get hold of. All the other capo are just kind of shushing people away. He stands in the middle of the camp, surrounded by all of these prisoners, and he says, wait a minute, and he hands out every single thing he has. He did everything and anything he could help. Not just this, he actually ends up escaping with three other poles. It is one of my favourite, I'm not going to go through this whole escape, but it is one of my favourite escapes of all time. What they do is they literally drive a horse and carriage out of the camp. And that's what they do. They manage to escape. Otto Kuzel ends up in uh, Warsaw. He's escaped for about nine months, nine, ten months. He gets captured again, gets taken back into into Auschwitz, gets put into Block 11, but because he's German, he doesn't get executed. Not important what happens to the other prisoners. One survives, two die, just in case anybody wants to know. And if anybody really wants to know about the story, just DM me and I'll tell you the whole story. But uh, Jan Komsky, actually, if anybody knows Jan Komsky, Google him. He'll also be able to tell you the whole history of that, uh, of that escape. It's a really good one. So he uh, is end up in Auschwitz. Then what they do is they release him from Block 11 and uh heather Young uh, komsky very easy j-a-n komsky k-o-m-s-k-i komsky there you go um just in case and so they release him and they send him to Lager so keil flossenberg and that's where he is released he ends up uh standing trial as a witness in a few trials and it's actually really horrible the way they portray him and the way they speak to him during the trial, as if he is one of the people that basically committed all of these atrocities. But there is no evidence zero evidence Otto Kuzel even raised his hand to any prisoner. And to me, he is the most amazing, kindest person in such a horrific, disgusting place. So thank you.
2: Holmes.
4: Um, a, a, a couple of couple of questions. Um, I, I don't know if you mentioned it at the start. I heard you say that he was prisoner number two at Auschwitz. Does that mean was he taken there because he was Jewish, or was he taken there as a political prisoner? He was a criminal. Criminal. Okay. And then presumably that meant he was he a capo as well?
7: Yeah, functionary prisoner. First thirty were all functionary prisoners.
4: And if he because quite a lot, most of the capos were terrible, weren't they, in terms of.
7: Cuppos are a very, bl- again, we don't have the time in the world, but it's a very black and white scenario. You had uh, a lot of cuppos, It did bring out the most mm-hmm. sadistic bastards. I have a couple a in my own research who's a Pole, and his favorite thing was to beat Poles. I mean, I don't know how you could imagine doing that. There's there were also Jewish kapos, uh Polish, loads, but not everybody was bad and not everybody was good. It's really gray and it's a really difficult moment because there are a lot of factors that come into this and that's why a lot of historians don't write about Capo's because it is not that black and white, not good and not evil.
4: Okay and then where you mentioned that he saved people by putting on different work details and stuff, presumably that was, if people caught on to what he was doing, he was at risk then, yeah and then he mentioned that he escaped and, he, and then he came back and he was put in block 11. Block 11 the torture block, isn't it? So it's not prison great. within
7: a prison yeah.
4: Not very pleasant. not Okay, no, he's a good candidate. I've, um, I haven't got any more questions.
7: Okay, we're
2: back, and we have three more to come. I'm going to go with someone who has some German ancestry. I'm going to go with Heather. I always get that
0: slight panic when you say that. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to do Marlena Dietrich. Um, basically, she was born in Schoenenberg, which is now a district of Berlin. Um, her mom was from an influ- affluent family and her dad was a police lieutenant who ended up dying before World War One. Her mom ended up marrying her dad's best friend. And then he died two years later from injuries in the First World War. Beyond that, her childhood was actually fairly normal. She went to school, dreamed of being a concert violinist. Um, she ended up starting her career as a chorus girl because... Um, She had a wrist injury that kind of killed the concert violinist dream. She ended up getting a small part in the film Little Napoleon in 1923. And that opened up a lot of acting for the stage and started leading to more sizable parts in movies. Um, She ended up marrying in Berlin in 1923. And then in 1930 had her big breakthrough with the blue angel um the director encouraged her to move to california and helped promote her in hollywood where she worked steadily through the 1930s um and ended up being one of the best paid film stars um until in the late 30s when her star began to fade a little bit and she wasn't as largely in public in the public eye as she had been but she still made films and uh did travels to promote the films and um During some of these these travels, she uh, was actually approached by the Nazi party to return to Germany and star in movies for them. Um, They put very lucrative offers in front of her, you know, said she was a German. That was, you know, please come do this for us. And she said no. And as pretty much a, um, buff yourself to the Nazis. Um... She applied for citizenship in the U.S. in 1937. So she had always had very strong political opinions, definitely was not afraid to voice them. Um, In the late 1930s, she uh, helped create a a fund with uh, Billy Wilder and other German exiles to help Jews and other dissidents like the gays and lesbians of Germany and, you know, the others that might pretty much die if they stay there um helped get them out of germany um one of her highest paid movies was uh night without armor in which she made 450,000 dollars at the time so lots and lots of money now for some people she put the whole amount into that fund to help save people from from the nazis in germany um In 1939, she became a U.S. citizen and renounced her German citizenship. And when the U.S. entered the Second World War in 1941, she was one of the first public figures to sell war bonds and was said to have sold more than any other star. Um, She toured with the USO from January 1942 to September 1943, and she appeared before 250,000 troops on just the Pacific leg of her tour alone. that was not the only time she toured with the USO. Uh, she did two more times, so in 1944 and 45, where she performed for Allied troops in Algeria, Italy, France, the UK, and the Netherlands. And she also entered Germany with the, the US generals Gavin and Patton. Um, she was one of the um, stars who helped the OSS, um, precursor to the CIA, uh, record a number of songs, and basically, anti-war propaganda or anti-German propaganda, um, which were used against the Nazis. Um, she was the only um, person helping out that actually knew what they were going for, and she was more than happy to to help out. Um, she was actually very popular with both sides. Um, even in the songs against the Germans, some of them really liked her voice and everything. Um, after the war in 1947, she received the Medal of Freedom from the U.S. for, for quote, her extraordinary record entertaining troops overseas during the war. Um, she received the, I'm probably going to butcher this, so I'm sorry, the Legion d'Honneur from the French government for her wartime work. And in 1965, she received the Israeli Medallion, of valor for, um, quote in recognition for her courageous adherence to principle and consistent record of friendship for the Jewish people, end quote. So after the, the war, she's continued to act in movies and was, was, um, a staple on stage till around 75 when a, uh, onstage injury ended her career. But given that she had always been really influential in the politics, um, she actually had the telephone numbers of more more than a few world leaders. She would call Ronald Reagan, um, Mikhail Gorbachev and Margaret Thatcher frequently on the phone to discuss politics um, to the point where one of her monthly phone bills was $3,000. A lot of phone conversations because I can't even imagine having a bill that high. Um, So she passed away in Paris at age 90 um, and her funeral saw scores of people, like thousands and thousands. Um, there were ambassadors from Germany, Russia, the U.S., and the U.K., and a bunch of other countries. Um, the medals she received for her war work, war work were displayed at the foot of her coffin military s- style with the officiant priest remarking, quote, everybody knew her life as an artist of film and song, and everyone knew her tough stands. She looked like a soldier and would like to be buried like a soldier. She was buried in a cemetery in Schoenberg, um near where her mom was buried for her wishes. So given the fact that she really tried to take down the Nazis and had such strong feelings of equality and that the Nazis were horrible, horrible people. so that's why she's my pick for greatest German.
2: Well done, Heather. Uh, I really like that one Holmes.
4: Uh, it, I, I'm not sure about this one. I mean she's undoubtedly a very impressive. Person, Um I was surprised to mention her, who her lovers included. When I looked earlier, includes Errol Flynn, George Bernard Shaw, John F. Kennedy, John Wayne, Kirk Douglas, to name a few. Quite an impressive bunch.
0: Definitely, definitely impressive. Um, But I wanted to kind of picture more of the fact that she wasn't just about sex. She was about, you know, caring for humanity and helping and people. Said,
4: and she certainly did do that. I guess my, my uh, seeing as we're being asked to consider history's greatest German, my, my sort of issue is that she doesn't really feel German to me. She wasn't there very much. It's a bit like me nominating myself for the greatest living Mank or Derby fan. You know, it's just tiny little bits of my past that re- are really relevant. And also,
0: she started there. That's what accounted for me.
4: <laughs> she did. And then she went back there in the 60s and got quite yes. a hostile reception, apparently.
0: Yes, the point yes. it made her a
4: little bit ill, and she vowed never to go back again.
0: Yes, um, it seemed like one one half of Germany was totally like, "Hey, this is great, we like her." And the other half was like, "Get out! You're, you know, you're not German. You're a traitor." And I can I can understand her kind of being like, "Oh, oh, okay," but at the same time, good for her for standing up for her principles.
4: And then, do do we know if? You know if her reputation was rehabilitated over the years since then, is she looked at more favorably in Germany now?
0: Honestly, I'm not sure
4: and then I, but I thought it was in- no and then I, I, I thought it was interesting that yeah, as you mentioned that in, in her later years, she used to ring up Reagan, Thatcher, Gorbachev. I mean I, I mean my mum is quite old, she'll just fucking speak to anyone on the phone all day, so I don't know if there's an element of that or not okay no nothing further.
2: Okay, well done, Heather. Uh, I'm glad we've got a woman in the mix now as well that isn't Princess Victoria (laughs) Louise. Uh, Kit, Kit's just going to bring someone now that changes the face of humanity and makes us all
5: look like dicks, aren't you? I I am, that's how I roll. That's why no one
2: likes you. (laughs) Yeah.
5: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to bring together someone who, I mean, I'm going to stay in my lane, obviously, I'm going to choose a scientist. And the biggest pitch uh, problem I've got is which scientist do I pick from Germany? I mean, Albert Einstein was born in Ulm. The problem is Albert Einstein was a truly terrible human being Um, and uh, he was horrible to his wife and he did his best to distance himself from Germany as soon as he could. So um, you've also got Johannes Kepler who was born in Ulm as well, fantastic scientist. You've got element discoverers like Hennig Brand, a German who discovered phosphorus while trying to turn his own piss into gold. Um, You've got Max Planck, you've got Rudolf Diesel, you've got Nicholas Otto, you've got the infamous Fritz Haber, um, who on the one hand saved billions through his process of producing fertilizers, and on the other was the father of chemical weapons. So I'm going to avoid all of that. And I've gone for a physicist that you might not have heard of, but has absolutely saved your life. And that is Wilhelm Rutgen. And uh, Rutgen was born in 1845 in Waffertal in uh, in the Rhineland and was thrown out of school for drawing cartoons of his teachers, which, in fact, he hadn't done. It was another pupil who had handed it to him. Um, Instead, he ended up as a, a mechanical engineer, and in the 1890s, he began to experiment with cathode ray tubes, an electrostatic charge. Now this all sounds a bit scientific, so let's simplify it. Rotgen noticed that he was causing mysterious rays. He didn't know what they were. They was something unknown to science. And so he began to investigate. He worked around the clock. He ate and slept in his lab as he investigated this unknown phenomenon. And in 1895, he found the answer. He was making something that no one had discovered before. Unable to come up with a good name, he decided simply to call this mysterious discovery the X-ray. A month later, he decided that he needed proof of his concept and working out that he could take radiographs with these rays. He decided to photograph his wife, Anna's hand. He produced a perfect Reproduction of the skeleton inside her flesh, claiming, you know, Anna shouted out to the world, I have seen my death. In late 1895, Rotgen published his paper. It would go on to be the most life saving in history the discovery of unknown rays. X rays have now become a cornerstone of science and engineering, and most importantly, medicine, where they give doctors unique insight into what's going on inside of you. During World War I, Marie Curie operated mobile x-ray theatres to treat servicemen, and x-rays are now so simple, it's been seen everywhere from doctors to dentist chairs. It is so important to the history of humanity that in 1901, Willem Rotgen became the first ever recipient of the Nobel Prize. But Rutgen never courted fame, offered a title by the Kaiser, the chance to become von. He turned it down, offered millions. He took the money and gave it to charity, offered a chance to patent his raise. He refused, instead allowing them to be used by millions around the world. During the hyperinflation after 1940, uh, after World War One uh, in the 1920s in the Weimar Republic, He lost all of his money. He became bankrupt, dying of cancer in 1923. He could have gone to the US, but he never did. He stayed in Munich, a loyal German to the end. Even so, he continues to be honoured for his work, which indisputably changed our world for the better. There is a peak in Antarctica named after him and an asteroid and perhaps the greatest honour of all element 111 bears his name. He is now synonymous with one of the very building blocks of our universe.
2: You wanker. You could completely pissed all over mine just before I've done it. But is yours a Christmas tree oh, ornament? Oh, sorry, did you
5: pick x-rays as well?
2: No, but is yours a Christmas tree ornament?
5: Uh, he is not a Christmas tree ornament, as far as oh, I'm yes. aware. If, if anyone has got a Willem Rutgen Christmas ornament, I would love to own it. Please send
2: it to me. <laughs> <laughs> Holmes, this is a bloody good shout isn't it
4: it is it is it was very good it was looking it was looking quite good for clive until then without giving too much away but no it's it's, it's good um, i haven't really got any questions but the one thing that i, I always thought and we were always told like mary curie invented x-rays is that it or is that something no. different or is it it's a different application it's,
5: or it's slightly different so mary curie uh, discovered um essentially radioactivity and uh, that was her big thing And she studied under Henri Becquerel in France with her husband, Pierre Curie, and she was one of the pioneers of radiation. In fact, she came up with the term radioactivity. Um, uh, X-rays, something slightly different. It is a related field. As I mentioned, Marie Curie and her daughter, Irene, actually operated mobile X-ray theatres during the the First World War. But it isn't the same.
2: Right. OK. Brilliant shout from Kit. uh... I've kind of given you a spoiler on mine. Here is my Christmas ornament, uh, which obviously none of you can see because this is radio. Uh, I am going to basically piss off all of our Napoleonic friends. I want you to picture this Hollywood historical epic style. I want you to picture a grizzled old man on a horse. In the pissing rain, sideways rain, skies grey, he's soaked to the skin and soon... He's going to win the Battle of Waterloo. And his name is not Arthur Wellesley. His name is Gerhard Leberecht von Blücher. And on the eve of Waterloo, he's nearly 73 years old. Clive, how old are you?
6: Not yet 65.
2: There we go. So he's a lot older than Clive, who is the most mature of all of our History Hack participants, Uh, which in the early 1800s, let's face it, 73 is a bit miraculous without antibiotics, a winter fuel allowance or Viagra. Uh, His life is a Hollywood biopic waiting to happen. Like all action heroes, his beginnings are sad and humble. Picture him scampering around Rostock, which is somewhere in Germany, and then joining the Swedish army as a stringy adolescent presumably try to escape a life of drudgery in a sausage factory or a brewery and making his escape into the cavalry. I am miming this with the Christmas tree ornament. Uh, I wish you all could see it. At 18, he's down on his luck. Captured by the Prussians in 1760 in Pomerania, I am led to believe reliably by a battalion of poofy little yappy dogs. Uh, When plot twist... He changes sides after an existential montage to 80s rock music in which he wrestles with his decision and decides that being Prussian is better than a prison cell. The die was cast. Well, for a few years, because then he reaches that point in the story where you think he's done uh, because he had a row with Frederick the Great and had to resign for being insub- insubordinate. Uh, so cue the part in the film where he becomes a farmer, drinks a lot of schnapps, punches some things up uh, and grows a big beard for 13 years until Frederick dies uh, and he gets his job back. It was an old, if this was an old school Lawrence of Arabia epic, this is where the interval would be because then it's all upward momentum. As he gets successively promoted for bashing the French, you're thinking, this guy has arrived. But no, there's more adversity to come. By 1806, he was commanding the cavalry uh, corps when he took a complete beating from Napoleon and then had a complete breakdown, which I only found out about half an hour ago from Kit, in which he thought he was giving birth to an elephant, uh, which is going to make for another very trippy montage because then I started, my brain started wondering to where is the elephant trying to get out of? And then I didn't want to picture that. uh, So I moved on. So how do you come back from this? You boot the French out of Paris, boot Napoleon off his throne and march into the French capital. That's how, and by 1814, he's done this uh, and he should have the credit for that. If Napoleon has got nothing nice to say about you, then as far as I'm concerned, you're winning. So Napoleon said, He had no talent for a general. "'Enough talent to beat you, bony!' Uh, but he admired his attitude to be like a bull that looks all around him with rolling eyes, and when he sees danger, charges. Uh, Napoleon said he was stubborn and untiring and knew no fear. He called him an old rascal that attacked him with the same fury after the most terrible beating as he would be on his feet again the next moment and ready for the fight. And fights he did during the Waterloo campaign. In a precursor to the main battle at Ligny, he spent hours lying under his dead horse and survived being repeatedly rode over by the cavalry don't forget he's almost 73 was he done no he gets up he bathes his wounds in a tantalizing mix of garlic and rhubarb drunk a lot more schnapps he really did drink the schnapps this time and resumed command in time for the 18th of june 1815 blucher is the commander you want he's not miserable like bony who's sulking his way around the battlefield or detached like wellington uh, this is a quote as he made to bail out the british Forwards, I hear you say it is impossible, but it has to be done. I have given my promise to Wellington and you surely don't want me to break it. Push yourselves, my children, and we'll have victory. And without him, the Duke of Wellington would not be getting all the credit for Waterloo. In short, the coalition force was utterly buggered until Blucher came and saved the day. I quote, With the battle hanging in the balance, Blucher's army intervened with decisive and crushing effect, his vanguard drawing off Napoleon's badly needed reserves and his main body being instrumental in crushing French resistance. The victory led the way to a decisive victory through the relentless pursuit of the French by the Prussians. The two coalition armies entered Paris on the 7th of July. So, because he was as old as dirt and not dead, because he triumphed over adversity a lot, because he made more managerial comebacks than Jose Mourinho, uh, and because he is the true victor in Britain's greatest ever battlefield victory and because it will piss Marcus off, vote Blücher as the greatest German in history. So there. It's
4: a very it's a very strong one. I like the fact you've got a, a Christmas ornament of it. Maybe a future subject should be the best depiction of a historical character in a Christmas ornament. Because I've got a um, King Harold from the Bayer Tapestry Christmas ornament as well. So there's a few out there.
2: This is literally the only fucking Blucher souvenir you can buy anywhere at Waterloo because and you know that the 1815 Memorial was run by French contractors? Uh, we walked in there with a nine-year-old American a few weeks ago who said, if you didn't know the result of this battle, you'd think Napoleon had won because everything apart from one T-shirt and one really crummy fridge magnet of Wellington is Napoleon. There is nothing of Blucher. This I got at the Musee de Wellington, uh, and this was all there was. And it's quite a crappy Christmas ornament. But nonetheless, we hung it on the rearview mirror and took Blusha all over the battlefield just to prove a point. Uh, so, yeah, this is it. This sad little Christmas ornament is the only present not, she has on the battlefield.
6: Not just there, but in Abba's song, Waterloo, there is not one mention of Blue Blusha, which is an abomination.
2: Rage. Look at him. He's raging. Rage. I, I,
4: I'm not an expert, and I don't want to wind up those that aren't here, but, I mean, we wouldn't have won without him and his troops, would we?
2: No, not according to the uh, mini-film in the Visitor's Centre at the 1815 Memorial. I get a bit tearful when Blucher marches up with his, uh, or rides up with his, and, and at the end, when he goes and he just shakes hands, with or salutes Wellington and then rides off again, as if to say, you're welcome, asshole."
4: Has he not got any got any young daughters that Chris has got a bit of a thing
2: for? Uh, probably great granddaughters by the time (laughs) 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 bless him I I still can't uh, admittedly I haven't dug any deeper than Wikipedia because I literally put that pitch together in the last 20 minutes Um, but I can't figure out why he was in the Swedish army other than he lived quite near Sweden maybe it was closer than the recruitment office for the Prussians you know because he's
6: not the mission even the greater (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he's not, he's German, but he's not Prussian, but he he leads the Prussian. So, yeah, he's from a Grand Duchy of Mecklenburg something or other, unpronounceable. So, he's very much German, but for some reason pretends to be Swedish for about three years in his teens. Maybe it's that rebellion phase.
3: Could be. We've all had the Swedish phase. <laughs>
2: Oh, that could mean so many different things. Right, okay, Holmes, have a little think about it. We will go around the room and see who everyone would have voted for if they can't have their own. I think I would have voted for Clive's one. Clive, what about you?
6: I think I'd go with Marlene Dietrich just because it was Heather who gave the presentation.
2: Yeah, and it was done with love. Heather, what about you?
0: I don't know, believe it or not, I... Not hard to see, but I'm very indecisive. <laughs> it was a tough one. <laughs> I don't pick favorites here. <laughs> I'm not putting my Christmas present in jeopardy. <clears throat> Elena, what about you? I don't really like Tether's one, actually.
7: I thought she was pretty cool i'd I'd like to go out for a drink with her. me too. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, which leaves us with Kit.
5: Uh, Adna, I thought Clive really gave a convincing argument for someone who helped unify Germany and made it what it is today.
2: Yeah, I think there, there's a, a big case to be made for the poor bastard that came in and tried to sort all that out after the Second World War. Chris has his German Admiral's uh, hat on. His World War I, before he starts getting help, <laughs> eight mail. We were very specific. Chris, what about you?
3: My first essay for GCSE English, uh, GCSE History, was uh, in the module 18 to 15 to 51. In my first line, I got told off because my teacher said, there is no way that you can get away with saying that the Germans won the Battle of Waterloo. I'd also <laughs> like to quote my my best one of my best friends, Sam Jolly, who said, it had, Belushi is the coolest German of all time because he's the only person who could beat my beloved Napoleon. So... <laughs> I mean, it has to be Blucher. I mean, he's a German military hero. I mean, I thought, I know von Müller is a naval military hero, but let's face it, Blucher did everything. And he's got two warships named after him.
2: Yay! One of which
5: cool. turned upside down and sunk in the bottle of Delver Bank. And, and the
2: Shut
0: other up, one got sunk yeah. really quickly <laughs> in the Norway. We don't talk about that one. Or
2: the other
4: one.
0: Holmes,
2: which way are you going?
4: Well, I mean they were all they were all pretty much neck and neck. Until Kit went, I had Clive winning with the rest all pretty pretty much neck and neck, as I said. But I think it has to be Kit. Just because the economic miracle of Germany was very important, but just the the, the benefit of what um Roggen discovered, if I mispronounce that, what he discovered, the benefits of that the whole world is Kit illustrated is probably makes him slightly shaded.
2: Excellent. So Kit first, Clive second. Yeah. And Bluscher third, right?
4: Even go, <laughs> everyone else can go equal third. There's <laughs> no losers. No losers in this. So I've gone woke.
2: I'm woke, right. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, next time, we will not be letting Chris pick the topic uh, because otherwise, we'll History's be having a debate on everybody's favorite German princesses, which could get dull. Greatest
1: poll.
5: <laughs> greatest poll.
2: Oh, God, no, because there's no chance you won't mention the fecking holocaust
7: then no 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 i could be a judge then i don't have to argue shit
5: yeah but
3: then i'll be arguing for you so
2: (laughs) yeah we're not doing greatest ever poll we've done brits and we've done germans uh maybe we'll do something ironic next time maybe we'll do greatest ever french person and punk sam because we all know she'll do napoleon and we'll just conspire to make him finish last
5: you know what, we should do something like greatest ever Mongol or greatest ever Sudanese and actually make people do some research for a change.
2: All right. Great, okay. history's, greatest, ever history's greatest African. That's the next topic. And they're and not allowed to be a colonial. I was going to say, you can't do Mandela because that just... Oh, come on. <laughs> I'll let you fucking argue that out. We will do history's greatest African. Uh, They can be white or they can be black, but they must not be like a fecking... Governor of someone appointed by the British or something like that. They actually so have Couldn't to we people.
6: invite Marcus back to do Cecil Rhodes? <laughs>
2: <laughs> do you know what I love? Do you know just I just say, I have to applaud Westminster Abbey for the way they've dealt with Statue Gate and the fact that they have statues and memorials to racists and uh, colonizers all over their building because they've passively, aggressively just shaded them out. So when you go into Westminster Abbey now, there's this monstrous East India Company memorial on your right. And they now use that to stack chairs in front of so you can't see it. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you go find Cecil Rhodes in Westminster Abbey, he's literally in a grotty little corner above a fire hydrant. It's fantastic the way that they have passively, aggressively edged these people uh, out of your consciousness. I think that's how it should be done.
7: Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.